Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 128 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my husband, Dylan. Hello. What? I know. (laughs) Yeah, what the? That was insane. (laughs) I got a promotion, so I took it. (laughs) With me, as always, is my friend, Toby. Hey. My brother, Andrew. Hey. And my husband, (laughs) Dylan, is the sound recordist. It's too late. You introduced me first. You can't take that back. (laughs) In his proper place. (laughs) Sorry. I got hung up on the fact as I was reading like the intro blurb that when I first wrote it, I had 125 on Red Books four years ago, Mm. and I'm getting close to it. 128 on the way. (laughs) Time for some more shame, I think. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh oh. Um, Speaking of shame, did you did anybody celebrate Independent Bookstore Day yesterday? No. (laughs) (laughs) Did you celebrate on Independent Bookstore Day and just buy a bunch of stuff from like? A book barn from Daddy Bezos. Just hung out at Barnes and Noble and well looking up on Amazon. This explains why they didn't RSVP to our independent bookstore day party. It was just us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, no, I, I only found out belatedly that that was a thing from your post on Instagram. Um, yeah, me and- too. Being a good little boy who doesn't want any shame, I didn't go to a store, but maybe now I regret that. Yeah, I'm trying to think, is there something like we could do instead of getting shame? Like, you know, are there, can we start some like special holiday foods that you always eat on Independent Bookstore Day or like a, you know, a tradition that doesn't involve buying books? Ooh. Mm. Like when you just bake a book in the oven for a while, like a baked debris <laughs> yeah. covered in like a puff pastry. Delicious. And then just eat a go. copy of Freedom by John Franson. A nice thick modern lit novel baked in brie with a puff pastry covering. I think we got it. What if it's like Groundhog Day and they do the like, is it cake thing every year? And nah. sometimes it's a book and sometimes it's cake. Wait, I'm hung up on this, Bailey. If it were a book, what would it mean? And if it were a, a cake, what would it mean? Because I know it means like six more weeks of winter. Oh, yeah. well, first of all, you would have to have somebody cutting the cake with a giant knife. And I think we can all agree that that's um, Jonathan Franzen. Should be a groundhog. Oh, no, <laughs> no, I thought you said Bill Murray. <laughs> and if it's a book, then you're going to get 10 more shame that day. And if it's cake, then you get no more shame for the rest of the year. Wow. So a life free of shame. What a gift. Uh, Well, we did do independent bookstore day. We went to two different bookstores (laughs) transitioning. Somehow it feels like we should have asked you this question, Bailey. I know. Mm, It does seem like we we dropped a thread there, Toby. (laughs) Um, But we didn't, we only got two books. One book being a book about a pig that Maggie picked up. Um, But we went to the last bookstore in Chevalier's. No, it was called like Wiggly the Pig. And it's funny because when we were at the last bookstore, we were just around about, it was very crowded. A lot of people celebrate Independent Bookstore Day, or I guess a lot of book nerds do. Yeah, there were a lot of people. Maggie, our child, decided to run around, and she, she's been into surprising lately, which is running up and screaming at you. <laughs> she did that in the middle of the last bookstore, which was kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, it's part of Independent Bookstore Day. There you go. Being scared by a child. So wait, what was the other shame, though? Because you said there was a a book for Maggie, and then there was another one. You said two books? She tried to sneak that under the wire. You're very perceptive, Andrew. Thank you. Nothing gets past you. Yes, I got, I'm just starting. I actually haven't even started it. I just have made the effort of pulling it down from my shelf to put on my bedside table, The Court of Thorn and Roses. So I already bought the sequel. So I bought the sequel, just figuring that I'll probably Uh like it. Yeah, so you know your whole thing about not getting shame until your birthday, that's out the window? (laughs) 
I felt like I had to support. <laughs> I, I had to support Chevaliers. This is where I think they should sell like baked brie books, and then you could get you could support them and not have to get like something on your shame list or like a T-shirt. They probably sell those too. Baked brie T-shirt. I just don't think that would taste as good. <laughs> that's that's a good point. <laughs> so that was. My shame. Wait, but so Bailey, I've heard of this just for people who aren't familiar. I think people are going to be really excited for you to get A Court of Thorn and Roses on the to read list because it's pretty popular, as I understand, right? Like it's like a big, long series with a lot of sexy elves or something. Yes. Um. Well, because I intend to start reading it tonight. It won't be choosened, but oh. but I can talk about it next week on the podcast and, you know, do a Court of Thorn and Roses check-in. But yes, it's essentially, from what I understand, sexy fairies. So hmm. I'm all in. Hmm. Well, I also, I don't know if this counts as shame. Does this count as shame? Probably, if you're questioning it, usually. <laughs> I went a little ham and bought Maggie the entire um, collection of Lit for Little Hands, as we discussed last week. Oh, as long as you read them, they don't count as shame. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, so not shame. What is the um, what is the most out there like title you would least expect to be a, a member of Lit for Little Hands? I mean, Jane Eyre is up there, and Les Mis. Like, yeah. how are they going to... Yeah, Les Mis. Les Mis is a big one. I don't know. Little Life for Little Hands seemed to be a a little much. <laughs> yeah, conversations with friends for little hands is a little strange too. <laughs> Most of them are pretty standard. It was like Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, The Secret Garden. Those, but those are like already children's stories. So that that changes my understanding. When you said it was Les Mis, I was like, okay, they are adapting adult stories for like very young children. But then those other ones are just children's stories, aren't they? Well, but they add pop-up elements and like doors you can open. So that's a little Shade. bit. Shade. <laughs> Shade to you, Lit for Little Hands. They had Pride and Prejudice, which was kind of fun. See, that makes sense with the adult thing. Yeah, there you go. Pop up, Mr. Darcy. Ooh. Mm, coming out of a lake. Uh, <laughs> hot. Oh, and, and I finished Fingersmith. Ooh. Which we were talking about last episode. I think I finished it shortly after we re- recorded. It was really, really good. I also gave it five stars. And I've been watching the, nice. B- the BBC miniseries, which is very good, too. That's good. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Oh, with Sally the Hawk Hawkins? Yeah. <laughs> I realized we didn't do enough, like, thumbs up jokes for the Fingersmith. Oh, yeah. But do they count as fingers? Mm. Mm, a controversial subject. We'll have to think about it hard. Discuss. That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, what's new with you guys? Uh, you know what? Not not much is up here. It's been lovely, Arcata, California. It's cold and beautiful. And you know what? It leads to a lot of reading. I'm reading a lot of books, but that's about it. Any outside of the two read list books that you would recommend that you've been reading? Uh, yeah. I'm, well, there's one I'm kind of split on right now. It's called, it's what I'm reading right now. It's called A Promise of Blood Ooh. by Brian McKellen, I believe the author is. And it's like a high fantasy. I think he's been compared to Brandon Sanderson, but I'm enjoying it. And it's very much a candy read where it just kind of like the pages just kind of flip by and you're having fun reading the story, but I don't think I've ever read an author who is less interested in visually describing anything at all. (laughs) It almost seems like like all it is is like dialogue and action and it's fun and it's like really it means it moves super fast but I was like 50 pages in and I was like why don't I have any idea what anybody looks like (laughs) or what the city looks like at all. But yeah, I'd say I'm enjoying it. It's very much a fun candy read. Is there blood in it? Well, there's a promise on the cover. There's been some blood. I want if he just thought words like, oh, I don't have to write descriptions. That sounds like the book cover illustrator's job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Andrew, I heard you just recently bought a dream house. I heard you read a book about a dream house. <laughs> <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> 
Uh, yes to both of those things. Um, I feel like we've established that I bought a house on this podcast. <laughs> and if you are an eagle-eared listener, you'll know that my book this week is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. No way. Our house in the middle of a dream. Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> so yeah, this book, listeners, to give you a little bit of background here, we as a group almost couldn't remember if we had covered Carmen Maria Machado on this podcast before, but we haven't. But it feels like we did because she came up so often in some of our mini-sodes when we were still making those as a, a favorite author and uh, Twitter personality in the book universe. Um, so I was really excited to get a chance to read this book for the podcast. Um, so she has been a part of our podcast while not ever getting a formal review until now. So let's party with this dark and serious book. Um, <laughs> but here's a, a little teaser to give you a sense of what the book's about. Carmen Maria Machado's unconventional memoir about surviving an abusive queer relationship is in some ways a less firmly plotted story and more an ongoing navigation of the facts of the author's pain. Machado tells her story in brief chapters, using each to propel the narrative and examine a literary trope or genre as a guide. She masterfully shows us what the world may deem impossible, abuse in a queer relationship, is not only possible, but common, woven into the canon of the stories we tell ourselves. That's beautifully put, Andrew. I've, I've read this one, too. And I think you, you nailed it. Thank you. So yeah, as you can get from that little teaser, it's a it's a book about a very serious topic, a very heavy subject matter. Um, it chronicles from the beginning to the end of the relationship of um, the author and a woman who she meets while she's in grad school. And they have a sort of complicated beginning to their relationship. And then it sort of devolves as it becomes more and more serious and her partner becomes more and more controlling and more and more abusive. Uh, and you get a really keen sense sense of what it's like and what it feels like to be trapped in a relationship. I think feeling trapped is a big theme of this. And I think part of why it's called in the dream house um, is because in some ways, this house that is both metaphor and physical and literal uh, becomes this like impenetrable casing. Um, that's both the relationship as a whole and the physical space that she feels trapped in. Um, to give a little more context to how it's written, because I feel like that's sort of hard to visualize without seeing it on the page. Uh, each chapter in the book is called Dream House as blank. So we have, for example, just opening to a random section, we have one called Dream House as Soap Opera, Dream House as Comedy of Errors, Dream House as Demonic Possession. It's all these sort of tropes in both literature and just storytelling as a whole or genres. So there'll be some like, one will be called like horror story or you know, or even as specific as one's called like Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. And so she uses either that literary trope or that genre piece as something to bounce off a sort of fragment of the relationship to deepen both the narrative and also to uh, provide you with some sort of grounding to, to bounce off her thoughts. Because I think a lot of what's so powerful about this book is she's not presenting a finalized story. She's presenting her figuring it out. Right. And I think that that's a very effective use of what I feel like could be deemed as sort of like a gimmick. And I feel like it doesn't feel like a gimmick at all because of it's like very much the right way to tell the story. Yeah, it feels almost kind of like a coping mechanism too. like this is just the way that she needs to frame it. 
it in order to present it or yeah. Yeah. And she says as much in one of the sections, she says she started writing sort of micro fiction because she couldn't, she was in such a bad place that she couldn't wrap her head around an entire narrative. And I think this is sort of um, a build out from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so to go into my elves and orcs, uh, I'm going to give you a little tip off here, which is that there are far more elves than orcs. This is a really amazing book. Mm. And I'll start off by showing you the main reason why it's an amazing book. And that is because Machado is a wonderful, wonderful writer. Um, I've read her body in other parties, so this doesn't come as a surprise to me that she's a wonderful writer, but it was something really special. I feel like after getting to read that book, which is short stories, uh, getting to read something that was like an entire whole piece together, um, I really enjoyed getting a chance to read that, and I eagerly await more published work from her. Awesome. This is a quote from page 15, just to give you a sense of her as a writer. Um, This is from the section called Dreamhouse as Inciting Incident. Um, So you can tell this is early on in the relationship. This is actually chronicling uh, her meeting the woman she refers to as the woman from the dream house or the woman in the dream house. Every time she speaks, you feel something inside you drop. You'll remember so little about the dinner, except that at the end of it, you want to prolong the evening, and so you order tea of all things. You drink it, a mouthful of heat and herb scorching the roof of your mouth, while trying not to stare at her, trying to be charming and nonchalant while desire gathers in your limbs. Your female crushes were always floating past you, out of reach, but she touches your arm and looks directly at you, and you feel like a child buying something with her own money for the first time. Ooh, that's great. That's a great mm. metaphor. Andrew, remind me, is is the whole thing in second person like that? Uh, it goes in between. It's primarily told in second person. Uh, she delineates early on, like the you that's in this relationship is sort of different than who she is now. Gotcha. And so she refers to herself as you, but she also breaks that um, on occasion. Cool. And so... Look, you can tell that's really wonderful writing. Um, and the story is packed with that. And so you can see that she goes into, you know, literally chronicling what's happening and what it felt like. And also in a way that's cool, and I don't feel like oftentimes doesn't really work, but it works here, is um, the juxtaposition of this is a story from Machado's life and an examination of the world with like academia as a guide really, really works. And I'm going to give another quote, which is sort of an example of her bringing the academic more uh, to the book, which I thought was also cool and also something that I typically would bristle at, but I feel like works really well here. This is early on, on page four, and it's a a bit of a long quote, which I'll probably cut down, but here we go. Page four. This is from Dream at House as Prologue. The word archive, Jacques Derrida tells us, comes from the ancient Greek archaeon, which means house of the ruler. When I first learned about this etymology, I was taken by the use of house, a lover of haunted house stories. I'm a sucker for architecture metaphors, but it is the power, the authority, that is the most telling element. What is placed in or left out of the archive is a political act, dictated by the archivist and the political context in which she lives. This is true whether it's a parent deciding what's worth recording of a child's early life, or like Europe and its stopper its stumbling blocks, a continent publicly reckoning with its past. Sometimes the proof is never committed to the archive. It is not considered important enough to record, or if it is not important enough to preserve. Sometimes there is a deliberate act of destruction. I just keep thinking about Hamilton when Eliza takes herself out of the narrative by burning all her letters. <laughs> but yeah, that's yeah. that's a great... I never thought of it that way. That's so interesting. Yeah. So it, it, And so that's just sort of an example of both the hyper-personal and the way that she sometimes steps back and uses um, academic conceits to help tell her story. 
Um, like I think I've already sort of hinted at it, but my last elf I wanted to bring in was the the fact that it was small chapters and the way that she pivots how long those are and how much literal space they take up on the page was really affecting because it creates a rhythm that she can sort of either hit you with like some staccato or let you really think about a thought she wants you to chew on a little longer. I thought it was really effective. And now moving on to my orcs, big, angry, gigantic orcs. <laughs> I have very few orcs. <laughs> uh, like maybe I feel like the ending could have popped a little more, but she also engages with that. She talks about how stories like this don't really end. They just sort of, you have to pick where it ends. Like you have to, choose to stop talking versus the story actually ending. Mm -hmm. uh, so like hard to actually falter on that. <laughs> and frankly, I'm. this is a note I wrote down. Frankly, I'm just writing this so it's not all elves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and one other tiny thing. She was a little bit mean to completionists in the choose your own adventure section. <gasps> Uh, there's a choose your own adventure section and a couple of the pages like you literally can't get to. But if you read through it, they're like, why are you here? And I was like, well, because I wanted to read everything you wrote, Carmen. Um, digression. Um, how did you guys read choose your own adventure books? Properly. I followed the adventure. Yeah. But you could always go back and make a different choice. Yeah. Yeah. You cheat. You can go back and make a different choice. Or you dog ear anytime there is a choice. So then you can just go backwards and make sure that you get through every literal page. No. Bail head. Wow. <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, I sort of did that for this, but this was like an eight-page Choose Your Own Adventure, not like a whole R.L. Stein epic. Wait, so you crazies will just like read it once through and be like, okay, that was my adventure. No, no, no. No, I would, no that was my I adventure would... this time. Yeah, that's the best part about Choose Your Own Adventure books. It's like 10 books in one. I would cheat, and like if you go, if you make the wrong choice and you die, I would just go back to the last page and then choose a different branching path. I was going to say, you you guys didn't have your hand in the book when reading it, so you could have just flipped back to the page. Right? Yeah. I was like, oh, that's <laughs> Try, but I, try I don't book. think I did. <laughs> I don't think I did what Bailey is talking about. Like I would probably read through and get like four or five endings and be like, I'm done with this book. And like I would not complete it. No. Do you guys ever have moments where you realize that you are a very anxious child? Because <laughs> this is like third grade and I was like, must read every page. Anyway, sorry. Uh, that's just efficient. Well, <laughs> exactly. So I guess I'm definitely a completionist. So maybe that's a huge org for me. I don't know. Yeah. No, you would feel insulted at this moment, Bailey. But no, I, like, so th that's the level of like... Like, and I'm, that's even like, that's a joke or like, I really enjoyed this book. I giving it five stars. I recommend everybody who seems interested in this. Check it out. I will say if you are sensitive to depictions of domestic abuse, I would, you know, approach this carefully. But I definitely think it's something that should be read. Awesome. I loved it, too. I think I gave it five stars as well. You did. Okay. I checked. I checked my yeah. mutual mutual friends on the old GR. Nice. I'll say um, I'm in actually in the middle of reading it right now. I haven't. I didn't finish in time of the, for the podcast, but I like it so far quite a lot. Ooh, so. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome. I'm so glad you liked it, Andrew. Toby, do you have any facts on Miss Carmen Maria Machado? Yes, I do, actually. Um, okay, so Carmen Maria Machado, uh, she was born in 1986. She's the author of the best-selling memoir In the Dream House, which you may have heard of, <laughs> the graphic novel The Low, Low Woods, and the award-winning short story collection Her Body and Other Parties. She currently lives in Philadelphia with her wife, Val Howlett. So uh, Machado got her bachelor's degree from the American University in Washington, D.C., and she earned her MFA in the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which is a very prestigious program, ooh, obviously. Ooh. Yeah. 
this. <laughs> she's gotten all sorts of fellowships and grants, um, and she's uh, attended the prestigious Clarion Workshop, uh, where she studied under a lot of famous authors, including Ted Chang, one of my favorite um, short story authors. Cool. She says her writing has been influenced by many different authors, including Ray Bradbury, Shirley Jackson, Angela Carter, Kelly Link, Helen Oyeyemi, and Yoko Ogawa. I think we've actually covered a fair amount of those on this. Um, I was thinking those are some to-read list friends, friends of the podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was about to say, that sounds like the to-read list Avengers. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, uh, she's also said she's really heavily influenced by Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, which was given to her to read by a, quote, insightful and amazing English teacher when she was in the 10th grade. Uh, let's let's not talk about that book. Yeah, whoa. So she's coming for Bailey? Is that <laughs> yeah, she's really coming, for, coming swinging for Bailey. Uh. Uh, so the rest of this is going to be excerpts from interviews. Um, this is from an interview she did with the Paris Review. The interviewer asks, you're known for working, and it's, you know what, again, I looked for the author, it just said Paris Review staff. So I don't know what it is with these websites not crediting the people who actually did these interviews, but um, you're known for working across genres in your fiction, but it is particularly interesting to watch you do the same thing in a work of nonfiction. What did writing a memoir through a multitude of genres and narrative constraints make possible? And Carmen says, I tried to tell it in a straightforward way. I tried to write that way for years and it never caught fire. I would just read it back to myself and think, oh, this is dreadful, this is dreadful, and I put it aside. It wasn't until I thought of this structure that the whole thing opened up. It just felt right. I'm not describing it in a very technical way. I wish I could, but I literally thought, oh, this is the shape it has to take. The experience was so complicated that trying to describe it in a straightforward way would be impossible. It feels more symphonic than that. It feels more scattered. Ooh, I love that word, symphonic. Yeah. Mm. You could tell some of these author interviews, you're like, okay, yeah, you're an author. <laughs> you're killing it. The interviewer asks, how did filtering these experiences through the constraints of genre change, if it did, how you understood those experiences? And Machado answers, the sections that are more analytical, where I am parsing something apart or playing around with an idea, a lot of those came from the titles themselves. I came up with them before they had a context. For example, spy thriller. With spy thriller, I was thinking about the genre and the things that defined it for me. I realized a spy thriller is when someone has a secret and everything they do is infused with that secret. And that helped me remember things. I don't know that I would have ended up writing about that dynamic if I hadn't had that prompt to set my brain into a certain place. These genre ideas gave me something to hold on to, to get myself into some kind of different part of my memory and come out with something interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially after, you know, having read it and seeing, I wonder, it makes me now wonder which ones were which in terms of what was a prompt and what came out of the prompt, yeah. Interviewer asks, the words dream house conjure up many different associations. House hunters, mash, a beautiful future with some perfect spouse, a queer utopia. But you also demonstrate how that dream can become a nightmare. How do our dreams betray us? What a what a question. <laughs> um, Carmen takes it in stride and says, I talk in the book about fantasy and the way in which fantasy is the ultimate cliche of queerness. How can we get so lost in fantasy that we can't see the reality right in front of us? That sounds so cynical. I believe in dreams and fantasy and pleasure, but I didn't understand the cost at which they could come. Part of the experience of writing this book was coming face to face with that young version of myself and having to talk to her in this way and try to understand where it all went wrong. So... Yeah, it's a heavy book, guys. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Uh, And in this last uh, little snippet, I always like to find these. This is from an interview with Tin House, and this is about her writing rituals. And I always like to find these because it's so interesting to see what they have. So Tin House asks, do you have any rituals, ceremonies, or requirements that accompany your writing process? And Carmen responds, I always write with coffee or seltzer water on hand. I like to be dressed, that is, not in my pajamas. And I need to have my desk to be relatively neat and clean. I need to be in a relatively neat and clean room. In other words, if there's paper or clothes or dirty dishes everywhere, I can't focus. 
And sometimes I need to switch locations, get out of my element, head to a coffee shop or my office or residency or even, say, a hotel. There's something about being in a controlled environment with specific aesthetic stimuli around you that can really jumpstart some magic. I agree with all of those. Yeah. When I had to finish my college thesis, I took a dog sitting position so that I could stay in a different house (laughs) and focus. So I agree. Nice. Well, that's Carmen Maria Machado in her own friggin' words. Awesome. Boom. 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 Well, I like her a lot. And so that's In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Five stars. I also agree. Five stars. And like Andrew said, I can't wait to see what she writes next. Nice. Speaking of in her own words, Bailey, I heard you read some words recently. What were they? (laughs) Yeah. Tell us all the words you read and what your favorites were. One by one. I mean, I read the word the. Easy Mm. one. Too easy. Too easy. I read the word which. Oh, but what spelling of that one? Now we're getting somewhere. Ooh. (laughs) And then the word elm, like a tree. Mm. I'm confused. You'll have to tell, tell me all in a row. The Witch Elm. (laughs) Yes, I read Tana French, who's a beloved author writing crime thrillers set in Ireland. Um, This is her first standalone book outside of the Dublin Murder Squad series. Um, You might know the books In the Woods, The Trespasser, The Likeness, etc. So this is the first standalone. Um... I was really excited to get this one. I'm sure Toby was too, because I know you're a big ton of French fan. Yeah, I think I've read every book she's put out. That's awesome. And this one... Excited for Tana French, excited to see what she does with Standalone. And it's called The Witch Elm and has a creepy tree on the cover. Surely this is going to yeah. be awesome, right? Mm-hmm. That This is so far, Bailey. What? Our minds pre-reading this book are exactly aligned. Okay, you good. and me. But yeah, creepy tree. Even, I was even excited about the creepy tree. I was like, oh, what's going to be in that? What's going on with that tree? And I know, like, as somebody who is a true crime aficionado, I know the story of Bella and the Witch Elm. In case you guys don't know, it's that. I don't know that. Oh, you don't? Whew. Andrew, do you want to tell it? Do you want me to tell it? Uh, yeah, I can tell it. Yeah, go. You I'll tell give it. you a brief, brief overview. Uh, in the 40s, uh, four kids uh, in England were sneaking around on the Lord's property uh, and were trying to like scavenge bird nests and uh, climbed up a big old witch elm tree and then found a skull in it. Oh. And then they, after getting over being worried about being in trouble for being on the Lord's land, they told somebody and they found a whole skeleton in there and it was missing a hand. They've never figured out who exactly it was, but someone has wrote a wrote a graffiti wrote a graffito <laughs> that said who put bella in the witch element it keeps getting rewritten and no one has ever solved the case dun, dun, wow dun. that is a reference that went completely over my head when i read this book so good to know about it years later well i mean for those for those of us who know if you know you know mm-hmm. like that sounds great i want to read that book but toby what are you tell, talking about we told you about that fact already do you not remember <sighs> Oh. Okay, so what if instead of that, the person who's in the witch elm, the skeleton they find, is somebody who was only killed like 10 years ago and was like an evil rugby bully? It's not a spoiler because it happens like page 200. (laughs) That's okay. Okay, I'm going to start from the beginning. Okay, so I had really high expectations for this book. I go in, I start reading. We start with our character, Toby. (gasps) Yeah, (laughs) big ups. Toby is an Irish. Man, he's privileged. He describes himself as, quote, a lucky bastard, that he's gotten away with all kinds of stuff in his life. He hasn't had much hardship. Um, he hasn't questioned, or he hasn't even considered other people's perspectives. Then one night, after sort of a bad day at work, um, two people break into his apartment and steal his things and beat him up. So he's um, he's on the brink of death. And so from there, he is traumatized and he's also trying to get over um, the physical um, ramifications of that. Um, 
he has like, for example, a lazy eye and a limp and that sort of thing. And this is the first time he's ever had sort of any, you know, anything holding him back from achieving what he wants. So that's the context that takes up like the first 200 pages of this 500 page book. So at a certain point, like I really like Tana French. I like her writing. Um, It is, you could say, very matter of fact. And so at a certain point, I'm kind of thinking, when are we going to get to the mystery? Where's this witch elm? There is a witch elm on the cover. I see no witch elm. It's very matter of fact, but the fact is boring. (laughs) So around page 200, as I mentioned, uh, Toby has gone to his family's estate, their fancy house, and some of his his nephew and niece are playing in the witch elm and find a skeleton. Well, they find a skull and it turns out to be an entire skeleton and the hand is missing, but then the hand is found in the garden. So, you know, sounds familiar. (laughs) Literally exactly what happened, (laughs) except that picture me not knowing this at all, reading the book. (laughs) Not knowing it was a reference at all. But it's kind of exciting at that point. I'm like, okay, it's taken a while to get to Mm -hmm. mystery, but this should be fun because, you know, this witch elm is hundreds of years old. Like this could be like an old Victorian skull. But then very quickly, they do dental records and figure out that, no, it was a schoolmate of Toby's um, who people thought had died by suicide like 10 years before, who was not a good guy. So then it becomes who put Dominic, the frat boy rugby player in the witch elm. Mm Mm-hmm. And a big part of the conflict is that our hero, our Toby, has amnesia because he's been hit on the head a lot. I'm saying that cavalierly, but I really don't like amnesia as a trope. I don't know. I just find it a little lazy. It's frustrating. Not to tip my hand. So, and you don't like Toby as a name for... A name. Or a, yeah. a, a person <laughs> or anybody related <laughs> to it. Um. So anyway, so someone put on, put on Goodreads, and I completely agree with this. If this hadn't been written by Tana French, I would have DNF'd it. I would have stopped it. Mm. But because... I trust her. I was like, okay, well, maybe there's going to be a really cool reveal that ties everything together and is shocking. But, you know, in my opinion, in the end, it's a victim we don't know and we don't really care about. And there's like three or four potential suspects. None of them you care too much about. And in the end, it's just kind of tedious. It took like 500 pages to get to the end. And I never want a thriller, a mystery to feel tedious. And I mean, I I like the idea of a completely like unlikable protagonist who is figuring out sort of his privilege, but it didn't make it worth it to me. I wanted a creepy tree. I felt like I was denied the promise of the creepy tree, um, the promise of Mm -hmm. blood. And ultimately, I'm going to give it two stars because I just I mean, like maybe I could give it three. But like, in my opinion, I would never read it again. I don't think I would (laughs) recommend it. Um, Yeah, I would give it two stars. And I'm actually this is a question for the group. This is hard for me. Maybe it wouldn't be hard for you, Toby. So I have several of the Tana French books. And this is a nice, you know, first edition hard copy. And like part of me wants to keep it to have as part of the Tana French collection. But other part of me is never going to read that again. I should give it up. Do you guys keep books even if you don't like them if they're part of a collection? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel your pain here a little, Bailey. I think I, I don't have a direct analog, but I would definitely be tempted in that scenario if it was like, ooh, it matches all these other ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you may like the other ones. I don't. Basically, I'm saying, ooh, it's tough. Yeah, that is t- I can recognize how that is a tough call, though. That's easy for me to say no, because I never collect any books. I just kind of let them drift in and out. And I, But I can imagine having like a nice set and not wanting to break up the set. So that is a hard question. I'm realizing as I grow older that I'm very much a collector. See Lit for Little Hands. See Pokemon Go. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, Bill, you do have a ton of those books already, so. So, yeah, my review is two stars. Toby, what did you think about this book? Yeah, this is, I did not want to say anything. You know, it's no fun during the choosing if someone's like, that book is not good. (laughs) But that was, that was my, I just had to zip my lip at the choosing last episode because, uh, yeah, you know, it's especially brutal because I love Tana French. I, as I said, I read all her books. This is uh, so far my least favorite book of hers that it doesn't even feel like, you know, doesn't even feel like it should be on the same list. Uh, yeah, same. I felt the exact same way. I don't know if you hit as hard as I would have hit how deeply unlikable Toby is. Mm-hmm. He is so obnoxious and dense and awful. And then he has these this injury, which for anybody else would make you sympathetic to the character. And I think you're sympathetic for him for like a little bit. But then he's so whiny and so like just refuses to learn any lesson. Plus, he's like not helping in this investigation that you really want to go somewhere. It is a brutally frustrating book. Um, so I would agree. Two stars. Just a, a rough one. However, I would say ton of French. Great author. You should definitely check out The Likeness. It's a great book. One of my favorite books. Well, I have, I still have the likeness and um, the searcher on my to read list. The likeness is my favorite of her books, okay. so that'll be interesting if you get that one. Okay, cool. Oof. Um, do you have any any facts on Miss Tana French? Yes, I do. <gasps> Some French facts. Uh, French facts. Okay, you ready for this big one? Tana French, born 1973 in the very Irish place of Burlington, Vermont. I refuse to acknowledge this. <laughs> it says she's American Irish. She's an American Irish writer and theatrical actress. So she must have some heritage or maybe a dual citizenship. Who knows? So her first novel was In the Woods. It came out in 2007 uh, to a huge splash. Uh, It won the Edgar Anthony McCavity and Barry Awards for Best First Novel. And The Independent has since labeled her the first lady of Irish crime. She lives now and has lived for a very long time in Dublin, Ireland. McCavity, McCavity. There's an award for McCavity. All right. How dare you, Bailey? <laughs> that is Katz's Andrew Lloyd Webber's intellectual property. <laughs> Oops. Um, so there's not too many more uh, bio details on her because she has a pretty straightforward life. Um, but I have one more here and then we're going to get into interviews. Um, she attended Trinity College Dublin and she was trained as an actor. Uh, she was a working actor for many years. Uh, she settled in uh, Ireland and has lived in Dublin since 1990. Um, she has a husband and two daughters. Hmm. hmm. This is our second uh, Trinity author. Who is our other one? As the Roonster, Sally Rooney was um, uh, is also Trinity one. Yeah. Don't you remember the that Roonster. handsome boy wants to go to Trinity? Do you think that they would um, run into each other in Dublin? And I wonder if they're friends or enemies. Uh. Well, they could have a conversation and see if they're friends. Uh. But they're probably just normal people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, wherever you're going, there you go. Wait. <laughs> yeah. That's, I, uh, I was trying to tee it up for you, but that's not the title. Yep. <laughs> they do share a likeness, though, so. Mm. You're just trying maybe now. Oh my god. Maybe they'll <laughs> hang out in the woods. <laughs> You're lost in the woods. You can say, beautiful world, where are you? Anyway, um, uh, this is from a New Yorker interview entitled, How Tana French Inhabits the Minds of Her Detectives. And the interviewer is Alexander Schwartz. Alexander asks, you didn't start writing until you were in your 30s, which might seem to some readers relatively late. Before that, you were an actor, and I was wondering how that change came about. And Tana French responds, to be honest, it was always sort of in the cards. I used to write when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. We're talking short stories and your basic, really terrible teenage poetry. But the acting sort of took over. I was doing theater, and unless you're Judy Dench or somebody, the gigs don't line up 
upright. So there's always a gap in between, and in one gap, I did a few weeks on an archaeological dig. There was a wood not far from the dig, and I was looking at it and thinking, that would be a great place for kids to play. And then I thought, what if three kids ran in there, and only one came out, and he had no memory of what happened to the other two? <laughs> and then, what if, he, what if he became a detective, and a case drew him back to the wood? I really want to know what would happen with that story. I didn't think I could write a whole book. I'd never tried before, but I figured I could probably write a scene and maybe another scene, and then I had a whole chapter. Kind of the moment when I found myself turning down acting work, that was when I realized I was really, really serious about this book. And from there, it all sort of followed. And that book was in the woods. Well, that looks like a great place for a kid to be traumatized. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that not how you perceive the world, Bailey? <laughs> <laughs> Can't imagine looking at this dark forest, this scary, terrifying forest, and be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so the interviewer asks, and this is a bit of a meandering question, but here we go. The interviewer asks, I'm an only child, so I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, yeah, but I know what really happened in this story. And it occurs to me that Toby, the narrator of the Witch Elm, is also an only child and definitely has a touch of that same narrative arrogance. How did you decide that? The Witch Elm is the only one of your books thus far not to be narrated by a detective or not to take place from that point of view. How did you decide to flip up that framework? Um, which is an interesting question considering, yeah, what we thought about this book. Yeah. <laughs> Tana says, well, for one thing, I wanted to move away away from the Dublin murder squad a bit because I don't want to ever get caught in the trap of writing the same book over and over. I think if you're writing a specific procedural subgenre where it is A kills B, then a detective finds out through investigation who done it, it's quite easy to fall in that trap. So I wanted to take a step back. I looked at the process of investigation from a detective's viewpoint six times, and I kept thinking about the other viewpoints involved in that same investigation. You've got witnesses, you've got victims, you've got suspects, you've got perpetrators, and all of them seem to have that investigation entirely differently. But for all those other people, it's a total different thing. It's this force that just barrels into your life, turns everything upside down. You have no idea where you stand. Are you a witness? Are you a suspect? What are you? You have no idea what the detectives are doing. You have no idea where it's going to go, how much destruction it's going to cause, where it's going to stop. I thought all of those viewpoints deserved a look as well, deserved a voice too. And at different points in the book, Toby's all of those. He's victim, witness, suspect, perpetrator, and to an extent, detective as well. So he kind of covers all the bases. I wanted to try out all those different viewpoints. And that sounds really cool, but it's not cool, is it? It didn't work out well. Uh, Dublin murder suspect is not as good as Dublin murder squad. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, the, that's the pull quote. <laughs> Hashtag squad goals. As the neutral party in this, I think, Tana, you did a great job. <laughs> I have not read the book. Um, uh, so the interviewer says, but in this one particular, there's a lot of time spent with your character where nothing seems to be happening <laughs> from the perspective of figuring out who did the crime or even what the crime is. From the perspective of the reader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What kind of purpose does that serve for you? Another way to put it is you're often referred to as a literary crime writer, which is, I don't know how you take that term, if it's flattering or condescending or what, but I think people mean the writing is beautiful and that there's this kind of exquisite characterization. What do you make of that literary side of things? That seems like two questions in one, but Tana responds. She says, it's hard because I think the boundaries in fictions are breaking down all the time, which is a great thing. They bleed over from what used to be considered, this is what literary fiction should be like. This is what crime fiction should be like. More and more, there's a kind of crossover. For me, I don't know what I'm writing. I'm just writing this book, and the core story arc is not the murder and the solution. The core story arc is Toby. Toby is going from this golden boy in his happy life to somebody who's had that shattered and what he does about it. How will he put the pieces back together? Will he be able to? Where will this crisis take him. That's the storyline. It's going to be frustrating for some people because if you're coming to the book expecting a straight up crime novel that abides by genre conventions in which, yeah, the core of the book is the murder investigation, then you're going to be going about a hundred pages in, where's my murder? <laughs> 
where's this investigation? So I can see where if there's a clash between the expectations and the actual book, that always gets frustrating. But I like the fact that those expectations are no longer the end-all be-all. For more and more crime writers, you don't have to stick to the conventions. You can use them as a starting point rather than a finishing point. See, here's the thing. I think her editor knew that the book would sell no matter what. And so they didn't edit it as much as they should because this book should be half as long. And that's what I think. Well, there you go. That's Tana French, people. Well, I still believe in you, Tana. I'm still going to read the rest of your books, even though this... Yeah. Yeah. Can't say enough. I I love and respect Tana French quite highly. It's just, you know, not every book can be a hit. There you go. So that is The Witch Elm by Tana French. Two stars. Sorry. <laughs> Even with two stars, you apologize, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two stars and a friggin' apology. I feel like when, when Toby and I have given two stars, we're like, and eat those two stars, <laughs> Barker or Defoe. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I bet won't get two stars? What? The game Dylan's about to do for us. <gasps> Aww. Oh, I'm so excited. Dylan has a game for us. Oh, nice. Yes, the game. Being inspired by the Dublin Murder Squad, the two realists decided to start their own murder squad. Ooh, the Pedro Murder Squad. Mm. And that doesn't mean we're going to murder people. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are going to try to find some bodies for me. Okay. And you have to work together. Have you been killing people and you have to work bodies. together as a team. I might have not killed some people on some locations if you're worried about that. Okay. Basically, I have a list here from Mental Floss Magazine from Ellen Kutowski. So thanks for some of these suggestions. Places where bodies have been found. Okay. Is number one the witch elm? Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, some of these are fake that I added into. Okay. And you guys are going to have to work as a team. Majority wins mm-hmm. of whether it's true or false that a body was found there. And at the end... Because this is how the tests work for law enforcement agencies, you guys get to grade yourselves. So we work Love it. We work together as a team, come up with a consensus, and then in the end we throw shade by saying how many we think got was actually right. Correct. McCavity. What if I think I okay, I'm gonna be so confident, guys. I guarantee I'm gonna pick that we got them all right. Hey listener, that's a fake out. <laughs> Number one, a body was found at a spirit Halloween store. Ooh. Oh, snap. I would say absolutely yes. True. I think that I think that's too good. I think Dylan came up with that. I think that's false. Oh, I think there's a lot of worker unsafety at those. Uh, they got crushed by like a forklift or something. Oh, I was assuming someone dressed up a costume. I'm going to vote for Andrew because we've all been to Spirit Halloweens near Halloween. They're so busy that someone would smell a body. So I'm going to say I'm going to say no. Okay. Wow. Okay. I'll vote it on the first one. Great. All right. Well, you can put it down for later for your shade, Toby. The gift shop at the Oakland airport. That's very specific. A lot of these are specific. Which gift shop? There's like a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of gift shops. I'm suspicious. You didn't mention it. The spirit Halloween gift store. (laughs) (laughs) Oakland airport. I'm going to say true because I feel like this is, I feel like Dylan would have gotten more specific and said Hudson News. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Well, Hudson News are nice. I wouldn't find a body there. Where would a body be though? Those places are so small. Underneath the keychains. I've made my vote. I will not be swayed, but I can be outvoted. I say true. I say, yeah. All right. We'll go with true. Yep. In a Las Vegas cryotherapy chamber. Oh, oh, yes. yes. 100%. I'm sure that happens daily. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow, that was fast. <laughs> you, guys, true. you guys heard it here. Uh, cryotherapy chambers are death traps. <laughs> so we froze this guy to death and he died. The important detail is Vegas there, I have to say. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> the Nightmare Manor ride at Paris Disneyland. Is that like the Haunted Mansion? Mm. 
Uh, yeah. It does sound like a knockoff. Are you sure this isn't at Disney World? Little <laughs> <laughs> Disney World. DreamWorks Land. Um, I think I don't think Dylan would have come up with that French name, so I'm gonna say it's true. Oh, really? I was thinking it's so specific that it's too specific, and I think it's false. Andrew, you're the deciding vote. I think that he hasn't given us enough false ones yet, and so I think this one's false. <laughs> Nice. Andrew is purely operating on trying to double guess Dylan. (laughs) You're trying to outsmart me. Yeah. The set of CSI New York. (laughs) And then, but then they found out it was an actor. (laughs) I'm just picturing the poor, like, uh, wrangler of the extras being like, Jerry? Jerry? (laughs) Um, I'd say false. Movie and TV sets are busy places. I don't know how someone could die and then not be discovered and then for long enough for it to be like, we discovered this body. You know what I mean? Is there a CSI New York? There was. Gary Sinise was the lead guy. I'm going to say yes. Oh, it comes down to me again? Yep. Bailey Bailey and I always (laughs) in each other's faces. Let's play a game, Andrew. I think this one is, I think this one's true. Yes. Okay. And the final one, the Denver Museum of Murder. True. False. Bailey, Bailey, you can go ahead and say false. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, you guys are definitely not going to be working (laughs) as All right, Andrew, it's down to you. I'm I'm gonna say false. I think I think that I think that that's the that's the place you're least likely to get murdered. It's a classic wax museum style murder cover up. You just put the body there. Well, because I was the tying vote on everything, I think we got them all right. <laughs> I think we got all right, but one. I think we got the second one wrong. I think all of my guesses were correct. So whatever amount that correlates to. I tried to split my tie breaking votes between the two. Of you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, Andrew, you think you got six? Oh, yeah, all of them, for you, sure. You got them all right. I think five. Bill, I think it's five? I think three. I think three. Hey. I think we got every one of them right or every one of them wrong. <laughs> there is no middle ground. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, no. It's a tie between, huh? Bailey, huh? Ba- between Bailey and Toby because you got four right. Oh, okay. So which mm. ones are true and false? Go through them all. Spirit Halloween store, false. Yeah. Gift shop at Oakland Airport, false. Mm. But you guys guessed true. Well, but that's the one I thought we got wrong. I said I thought we got number two wrong, so just so everybody knows. That's your team, though. <laughs> Las Vegas Cryotherapy Chamber, true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You didn't need to tell us that. <laughs> Paris Disneyland Nightmare Manor, true. You guys guessed false. Uh, I oh. Yeah, that one was too specific in retrospect. Mm. Uh, set of CSI New York, true. Ooh. Yeah, mm. you did. And Denver Museum of Murder, not a real museum, not a real murder. False. I was going to say, why Denver? <laughs> the most evil city. So Bailey and Toby have been promoted to the murder squad. Well. But who do you want to work with? The one who yeah, agrees with you guys? Though? I feel like I'm a good teammate. I'm, <laughs> I'm realizing now in cop shows, they should just have three people working together versus two partners. Cause like, so there's always like, a choice, even if it's the wrong choice. <laughs> a tiebreaker. You always have a tiebreaker Either that partner. Or I want to see um, a Law and Order show with Bailey and Toby solving murders. Law and Order, Bailey and Toby. <laughs> they're just arguing about YA. <laughs> What's the opposite of the loose cannon? Because that's what Bailey is. I think he killed himself. Well, I think he did it now because Toby said that. (laughs) Well, that was fun. Good game. I hope that the Pedro Murder Squad returns to solve mysteries. Yeah. Good game, Dylan. Good game, Dylan. Well, you know what you guys don't have a choice in? Uh Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, gosh. He's doing his own transitions now. (laughs) He's out of control, you guys. Rein him in. Yes, it is time for... Dylan to choose books at random from our shelves to read next. It's time for 
the choosening. The, the choosening. The Dublin choosening squad. <laughs> <laughs> Billy. Yes. You made it through this whole podcast yeah. and it's only 1 p.m. I guess you've made it through half the day, but here's the question. Will you be able to survive the night? 108 by Riley Sager. That is a very long way to introduce that book. <laughs> Fine. Your book is Survive the Night. You know how it's noon here and night is eventually coming? <laughs> and you know the concept of... <laughs> well, I'm excited. Thank you for choosing that one, Dylan. That's that's a, another new one that I believe is horror. Here's the thing. Over Christmas, I went a, little, like horror. went a little hog wild and got a lot of horror. So I'm going to assume it's horror. I believe I got that one for you. Yeah. I haven't even seen this book in the house. I think it has to do with serial killers, so... Hey, Page O Murder Squad back on case. What if there, this is another book that for like 300 pages, there's no murder? No. Yeah. And then they survived the night and it was all fun. The end. Oh, well, Andrew. Yeah. Would you want a book? I, I would. I, I thought that was part of the contract here. Well, first, you're going to have to ask nicely. May I please have a book? Yes, please. You have <laughs> Yes, Please, by, number 89 by Amy Poehler. <laughs> Good one, I thought I was going to make him say yes, please. It's like, there's no way he's going to say it that way. <laughs> no. no, there wasn't a way. That t- what a strange way of introducing this book. Again, two two for two. Well, okay, I- I'm excited. I think that this should be um, pretty easy to read. And uh, yeah. yeah, I'm excited to check it out. I-, I read and enjoyed the audiobook because Amy Poehler narrates it. So yeah, mm-hmm. I believe I did too. Um, all right. So in two weeks on the podcast, we have The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe, reviewed by Toby. And then I'm going to be reviewing Survive the Night by Riley Sager, which definitely will have a murder. No questions asked. It doesn't say die the night. <gasps> Promise of blood. Thanks for listening to The To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the story graph at the to read list podcast. And if you like what you heard and you want to help us find more listeners, one great way to do that is to leave a rating and review. This is particularly true on Apple Podcasts. Helps more people find our product and keeps the Pejo murder squad in trench coats. <laughs> Did that make sense? Good. Okay, we're go- moving on. And if, uh, you know, no matter what type of squad you're in, murder squad, Pejo squad, um, baked brie squad, um, the best way you can really help us out is by telling your squad your friends about this podcast word of mouth uh, is always our best advertisement because uh, we're poor so please help us out and tell your friends about this podcast uh, thanks to toby and andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me to dylan for sound recording and to miss jillian beth durkee for composing our intro song see you in two weeks happy reading books, 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 books. Books. oh no it's cake